बालक महारंजीत नू चेचक निकली वड हाल न जापे बचन दा आसा बैठे छड सिर साई हाथ रखया राजी होया बाल उठया रति न तड़केया दारू दरमल नाल अख एक मारी सीतला बुझ गई जगदी जोत मुहते कई निशान पे चेचक चुंडिया खोत दूजी अख दी तकनी वी बहली ना सूत पर अंदर कोई अकल दी परगट हो पई कूत पता न ए लख नेत्रा कुहजा सैला बाल उजल करू पंजाब नू अपनी करनी नाल ना सुन के बलबीर दा कंबण गे नवाब ते तुम्मेगा फेर ओ जग विच शेर पंजाब the scion great ranjit singh was by smallpox struck looked like the lad would not survive terrible seemed his luck on his head was the hand divine die the child did not would not wake at dusk or dawn remedies many sought one eye did the illness take snuffed out was its light pockmarks many on his face left the cursed blight the ailing science other eye perfect did not seem but somewhere deep inside the child wisdom's radiant gleam who knew of his many eyes the worthy handsome boy glory he'd bring to punjab his actions would bring joy when he heard the brave one's name trembled each nawab renowned became he in the world the lion of punjab welcome to the third episode of the rise and fall of the sikh empire i'm host ben gutman In this episode, the rivalry between the Kanhaiyas and the Shukrachakiyas takes an unexpected turn after the young Ranjit Singh falls ill. In a masterstroke of diplomacy, Sadakar, widowed in the great battle between the Kanhaiyas and the Shukrachakiyas, offers the hand of her daughter, Mehtab Kaur, to Maha Singh for Ranjit Singh. Ghulam Qadir, whose grandfather Najib Khan Rohila was the virtual ruler of Delhi for a decade and the paymaster of the Mughal army. threatens the emperor Shah Alam trying to reclaim his grandfather's titles and position the emperor turns to Begum Samru the widow of the european mercenary Walter Reinhardt Sombre and the ruler of the state of Sadhana In late March of 1885 the Marathas renewed their diplomatic efforts by contacting the Sikh chiefs again Ambaji Ingle with the help of Maharao Pratap Singh of Alwar a Maratha ally reached out to Sardar Baghel Singh reiterating the previous offer 
the Marathas would join hands with the Sikhs to expel the, quote, Turks, and together they would conquer new territories in Avad, Jaipur, and Marwar after protracted negotiations held at Bakhtwarpur, close to Delhi, a set of terms was agreed upon between the Marathas and the Sikhs. The Maratha representative was Ambaji Ingle. The Sikh representatives included Sardar Bagail Singh, Sardar Karam Singh, Sardar Mohar Singh, and Sardar Dalcha Singh. The Sikhs and the Marathas would pledge to have common friends and enemies with no differences between them. The Sikhs would suspend their raids and collection of Rakhi in territories controlled by Madhaji Sindhya and in return receive a third of the wealth generated by joint expeditions that would be undertaken with the Marathas on either side of the Yamuna against both Hindu and Muslim states. The Sikhs would contribute a force of 5,000 horse to the Marathas and in return would receive expenses and a jagir or land grant that would yield a million rupees per annum. The Sikhs and Marathas would jointly put down disturbances caused by their mutual enemies. Lieutenant James Anderson, who was the British resident at Mataji's court, was kept abreast of these developments. Along with Major Palmer, the British resident at the court of Avad, and Colonel Cumming, the ranking British officer on the Avad frontier, Anderson was instructed by the British government at Calcutta to do everything to nullify the treaty, for a Maratha-Sikh alliance was seen as a significant threat to their designs. Anderson pushed hard at Madhaji, suggesting that the notion of joint Sikh-Maratha military operations undertaken on both sides of the Yamuna was threatening to British interests. Mataji Sindhya reiterated his commitment to maintaining friendly relations with the British and said that his treaty with the Sikhs had two main purposes. One was to protect his northern territory from their depredations and the other was to use them against the Rajas of Jaipur and Marwar, vassals who had stopped paying their dues to him. He said that they had been seeking an understanding with the Sikhs as well, and his treaty with the Sikhs had preempted a dangerous alliance from forming. When Sardar Dalcha Singh arrived at Mataji Sindhya's camp to formalize the treaty, much to his surprise, he was presented with new terms. The original offer of a jagir worth a million rupees had been amended. Now, in exchange for giving up their income from raids and rakhi, the Sikh chiefs would be allowed to keep 100% of whatever was realized by campaigns against other Sikh chiefs around Karnal that they were at odds with. Since Mataji did not claim any percentage of these proceeds, he deemed it sufficient compensation for the withdrawal of the Jagir. The offer of new conquests had been withdrawn, and instead, the Sikhs were expressly forbidden from attacking the territories of either Avad or the British. If any Sikh cavalrymen were summoned to serve in the Maratha force, before they had established their lands around Karnal, compensation of half a rupee per day would be offered. When Dalcha Singh refused to sign, he was detained until he had no choice 
but to capitulate. Angered by Mataji's reneging on the original agreement and the shabby treatment he received at the Maratha camp, Dalcha Singh sent an agent to James Anderson immediately with a message. The Sikhs were aghast at Mataji's treachery and had no intention of honoring the agreement that they had been coerced into signing. If the British were interested in an alliance, the agent would immediately get letters from other important Sikh chiefs to get the process in motion. Anderson responded diplomatically, saying that while the British were allied with Mataji Sindhya, he could assure the Sikh chiefs that the British would never join the Marathas in a conflict with them if one arose. Sardar Baghel Singh also wrote to Colonel Cumming, indicating that the Sikhs desired an alliance with the British. The British government in Calcutta reiterated the policy of keeping the Marathas and Sikhs at odds. The failed treaty had already created mistrust, and the greatest fear of the Sikhs was that the British would join hands with Mataji to defeat them. The British residents and commanders in the field were ordered to continue reassuring the Sikhs that they would stay neutral in the event of a conflict between them and the Marathas. The course of Indian history could have changed if the Sikh chiefs had successfully created an alliance with either the Marathas or the British. Unfortunately, both of these endeavors ended in failure. Taimur Shah had been driven to distraction by the Sikhs, who had virtually wrested control of the Punjab from him, and he nurtured hopes of winning his possessions back. He had reached out to both the Maratha Peshwa, as well as the then British Governor General Warren Hastings, acutely aware that he needed allies in India to take on the Sikhs. Unfortunately, there was no response from either the Marathas or the British. The only ally he had in India was his brother-in-law, the Emperor Shah Alam, who was toothless and impoverished, and the restoration of Afghan authority in the Punjab remained a distant dream. As if that were not enough, a new rebellion had broken out in his most prized Indian province, Kashmir, Beloved of both the Mughals and the Afghans, had been governed by one of Taimur Shah's generals, Haji Karimdad Khan, a harsh and unpopular ruler. Upon his passing, his 18-year-old son Azad Khan had seized the province and after accepting the overlordship of Taimur Shah, had been officially appointed governor. The young man, foolhardy but brave, had waged successful campaigns against his neighbors in Kishtvar and Punch, forcing them to pay tribute. His head swollen by his military successes, he declared that he would no longer pay tribute to Kabul and instead declared his allegiance to the Sultan of the distant Ottoman Empire. Even though Temur Shah was painfully aware that he was no military genius, like his late father, Emma Abdali, 
He had felt that the loss of Kashmir to a young upstart was too painful to stomach, and he left Kabul and set up camp in Peshawar. He sent his oldest son, Prince Humayu, at the head of 20,000 men to Atak. Word of the prince's march to the Indus spread like wildfire, and panic set in as far away as Delhi, as the citizens, fearful of the prospect of a new Afghan invasion, started to leave the city with their valuables. Azad Khan, determined to resist, hired 3,000 Sikhs to bolster his forces and started preparing for war. Tamur Shah, convinced that the Sikh Sardars who ruled the lands between Atak and Kashmir would oppose the prince, asked him to halt at Hassan Abdal. He sent an army under the command of Murtaza Khan and Zaman Khan, also sons of Haji Karimdad Khan, to bring their rebellious younger brother to heel, but they were defeated and were forced to limp back to Peshawar. As the Kashmir campaign was heating up, Tamur Shah received good news. His favorite Yusufzai queen, the mother of the prince Shah Zaman, had delivered a healthy baby boy. The Afghan king decided to name his newborn son Shuja al-Mulk. The Sikh kingdom of Patiala was a house divided. On the throne sat the 12-year-old Sahib Singh, the son of the late Raja Amar Singh. The lad was as dim-witted as his older sister Sahib Kanwar was intelligent and capable. Sahib Singh was married to Ratankor, daughter of the powerful chief Ganda Singh Pangi, and had the unique distinction of being initiated into the ranks of the Khalsa by two legendary Sikh chiefs. As an infant, he had been initiated by Sardar Bagail Singh, and then once again at the time of his wedding by the legendary Sardar Jasa Singh Aluwalia. Saib Singh's grandmother, a sagacious woman named Rani Hukam, had entrusted the affairs of the kingdom to Divan Nanumal, the late Raja Amar Singh's principal minister, who was a most capable man. However, many of the Sikh chiefs were jealous of his power and particularly hated the Divan's habit of constantly smoking a hookah, even in their presence, which they found insulting. Several of the women of the royal household were prompted to get the Divan dismissed and had him thrown in jail, putting the kingdom in peril. The already shaky reign of Sahib Singh suffered another setback when he had an altercation with his bakshi or army paymaster. The bakshi slapped the boy king and was thrown in prison for his insolence, and in retaliation his relatives surrendered several forts to other Sikh chiefs, such as Bagail Singh and Rai Singh Pangi, much to Sahib Singh's consternation. Rani Rajinder Kanwar, Sahib Singh's aunt, decided to intervene, dismayed at the turn of events, and marched to Patiala at the head of a force, 
successfully managing to free Divan Nanumal from prison. The astute Nanumal, recognizing the precariousness of his position, started building back the Patiala army, reaching out to the Nawab of Avad to recruit European officers to train the kingdom's troops. Then he reached out to the Maratha general Dhar Rao and offering to pay him a sum of three million rupees, convinced him to wrest back the Patiala territories that had been lost during his incarceration. For the moment at least, the young king's kingdom had been restored. Sardar Jayasingh Kanhiya had two other sons, Nidhan Singh, based at Hajipur, and Bhag Singh, based at Sohia. Neither of them were as capable as their deceased older brother, and consequently the power of Sadakor in the Kanhiya missile started increasing, as her aged father-in-law started relying on her more and more. As Sardar Jaisingh Kanhiya continued his war of attrition against Raja Sansarchand, she started spending more time in the saddle, joining the Kanhiya forces whenever they marched into battle. The loss of a husband had left a great void, but her energies were now devoted to securing her daughter's future. The humiliation at Batala at the hands of the Ramgarhyas also weighed heavily on her mind, and she constantly thought about ways of exacting revenge from both Mahasingh Shukarchakya and Jasasingh Ramgarhya. By early 1786, Kham had returned to Jammu after Mahasingh's last expedition, and the wealthy city was thriving again. Raja Brijaraj Deo had returned from Devi, bringing his immense wealth back to the city, and the bazaars of Jammu, which had always been an important trading center, were filled with merchandise. The Shukarchakya chief put together a force 5,000 strong and marched upon Jammu again. Ignoring the protests of his wife, Rajkor, he decided to take his six-year-old son, Ranjit Singh, on the campaign as well. The campaign was an unmitigated success. The Sikhs looted the royal treasury and the armory, leaving with more than 10 million rupees in plunder. The kings and chiefs of the surrounding territories submitted to Mahasingh and paid rich tribute in order to avoid Jammu's fate. And then, just as things were going marvelously well for the Shukachakyas, disaster struck. At the camp in Jammu, the Shukarchakya princeling fell ill. He developed a high fever and started vomiting. Soon he developed a rash, and in a couple of days his body was covered with pustules. Mata, whispered the boy's attendants, fearfully, for that was how smallpox was referred to. He has been possessed by Sitala Devi, they said to Mahasingh Shukarchakya, who was beside himself with worry. The first thing that Mahasingh did was send for his wife Rajkor urgently, and then he started casting about for remedies. When he was told that none were known, he started to despair. 
When one of his munshis or clerks, a Hindu, suggested that they take the boy to Ramnagar, where there was an ancient temple dedicated to Mata Sitala Devi, who was said to cure disease, he hesitated only momentarily. The Shukarchakya camp was moved to Ramnagar, and a desperate Mahasingh started to give away massive amounts of money to Brahmins and other holy men, in the hope that their blessings might cure his son. Akhand parts, complete readings of the Sikh scripture of the Guru Granth Sahib, were organized. Large offerings were made at the Sitala Devi temple, and Muslim clerics were summoned to read the Quran. The boy's mother had arrived, and she tended to him day and night, weeping constantly as he would not open his eyes. When the Munshi suggested that propitiating the goddess Durga might be a good idea as well, Rajkor decided to make the long trek to Jwalamukhi, the site of a famous temple dedicated to the goddess. Rajput kingdom of Jaipur was ruled by Raja Pratap Singh, who had taken advantage of the weakness of the Mughal court and had stopped paying the customary annual tribute. In addition, he had not been paying the tribute that was historically due to the Marathas after the Peshwa had been given oversight of the state. Madhaji Sindhya, in his new role as the emperor's regent, demanded that all the dues be paid forthwith. But Raja Pratap Singh flatly refused, allying himself with the Raja of Marwar and the rebel Mughal commander of Agra, Muhammad Beg Hamadani, who was bitterly opposed to Madhaji. In order to bring him to heel, Madhaji marched out of Delhi with the emperor himself in tow and set up camp a few miles south of Jaipur, sending an emissary to the king with a demand of 30 million rupees. A chastened Pratap Singh negotiated the amount down to 6 million rupees, but when Madhaji found that the king lacked the means to make even the lower payment, he sent his forces into Jaipur to extort the amount from the wealthy merchants and bankers of the city. As the triumphant Madhaji and Shah Alam left Jaipur, Pratap Singh swore revenge and started casting about for more allies. The first court that his agents visited was Jodhpur, which was ruled by Raja Bijay Singh, a sworn enemy of the Marathas. Meanwhile, in Kashmir, Azad Khan had become even more belligerent Encouraged by his success during the first Afghan attack on Kashmir, rumors had started flying that he intended to attack Kabul and depose Tamur Shah, which prompted the Afghan king to take decisive action. Tamur Shah deputed his military commander Madad Khan Ishaqzai with his trusted advisor Pende Khan to march upon Kashmir at the head of a force 50,000 strong. Azad Khan was defeated in a fiercely contested battle at Kushipura and he fled to Poonch, where he took his own life. His corpse was thrown to the dogs and a ransom of 200,000 rupees was exacted from his mother. 
one of his wives was taken into Tamur Shah's harem. The rebel had been punished. Kashmir was back in Tamur Shah's hands, and Kabul's authority had been re-established. The ambitious Maha Singh, sensing an opportunity, called upon Prince Humayun at Hassan Abdal and offered to administer Kashmir for the Afghans, promising tribute and easy passage to Delhi. Raja Bijay Singh of Jodhpur also sent a messenger to Tamur Shah asking for his help to oust the Marathas from Delhi, offering passage through Multan, Bahawalpur and Bikaner if the Sikhs blocked the Afghans' path. He also offered to rally the Rajput kingdoms to march with the Afghans to destroy the Marathas. Tamur Shah turned down both offers as he was eager to return to Kabul, for there had been rumblings that Shah Murad of Balak was preparing to raid his kingdom. Sadakor, widowed, stripped of her status, her wealth, and even her home, had spent months in the depths of depression. There were times when she would hold her only child to her breast and weep disconsolately, and then sometimes she would turn the little Mehtabkor to Tankor and Mankor and refuse to even see her face for days as she alternated between raging at her misfortune and mourning Gurbak Singh. Even though her attendants tried to keep the news from her, she learned of Mahasingh's continued successes and the further humbling of her proud father-in-law, Sadar Jaising Kanhaya. Inevitably, her anger turned into resignation, and both her keen intelligence and her maternal instincts started to assert themselves. Her beloved husband was gone, and the back of Kanhaya power had been irrevocably broken. What was to become of her daughter, the only kin she had left? She had neither the power to protect her, nor the wealth and status that would guarantee her future. And then an idea entered her mind. But convinced that her father-in-law, whose bitterness at the sugar Chekias exceeded even hers, she decided to hold it close to her chest. She summoned one of her trusted advisers, Amar Singh, and sent him to Gujaranwala to seek out Sardar Mahasingh. A couple of days later, Amar Singh returned with news. Mahasingh was away campaigning in Jammu, and a messenger had arrived to summon his wife Rajkor as their young son was grievously ill. Amar Singh had learned that Rajkor would go to Ramnagar and from there take her son to the temple of Jwalamukhi to pray for his health. There was no time to lose. Entrusting her child to Tankor and Mankor, Sadakor sent for a horse, and with a small cavalry detachment, she rode north. Conflicting emotions surged through her mind as she neared Jwalamukhi, and she was not sure how she would react when she came face to face with Rajkor. She had been her friend, but she could not forget her haughtiness when she had come to see the newborn Mehtabkor. Besides, her husband was in large part to blame for her devastation. 
But she had come with a purpose in mind, and she would have to cast her anger aside. Sadakor's bitterness evaporated in an instant when Rajkor ran into her arms sobbing uncontrollably the second she laid eyes on her. He will die, Sadakor, she wept, gasping for breath as tears streamed down her cheeks. For the next few days, Sadakor, her rancor forgotten, tended to the sick boy with Rajkor and earnestly prayed for him as if he had been her own son. The fever broke after twenty-one days, and the boy was bathed as prayers of thanksgiving were offered. Much to the sorrow of his parents, the lad had lost one eye to smallpox, and his face would forever be scarred. However, the heir to the Shukarchekia fiefdom had survived. When Sadakor approached her friend and asked her for her son Ranjit Singh's hand for her daughter Metabkor, Rajkor was beside herself with joy, but she told Sadakor that she would need to consult her husband. Mahasingh saw the alliance as an opportunity for rapprochement with the Kanayas, who, despite their reduced circumstances, still wielded considerable power and were greatly respected. Without any hesitation, he accepted the proposal, and Sadakor returned home in triumph. She was, however, fearful of Jasing Kanhiya's wrath, as she had acted without consulting him. But she was hopeful that the patriarch would recognize the shrewdness of her move and forgive her. Her fears turned out to be unfounded. After his return to Gujaranwala, Mahasingh arranged a magnificent event to celebrate the recuperation of his son, to which all the principal chiefs were invited. Sardar Jaisingh arrived with Sadakor and formally proposed a betrothal between Mehtabkor and Ranjit Singh, which was accepted by Mahasingh. Gifts were exchanged prayers of thanksgiving were offered, and a formal engagement ceremony was completed. No expense was spared in the care and entertainment of the guests. The war between the Kanhiyas and the Shukarchakiyas had ended. Sardar Jasasingh Ramgariya was one of the honoured guests at the event, and while he made a great show of being happy, he was seething inwardly. His worst fears had come true, and he was convinced that the rapprochement between the Kanayas and the Shukarchakiyas was sure to create trouble for him. The trouble that Sardar Jasasingh Ramgariya had anticipated was not long in coming. Their alliance re-established, Mahasingh and Sardar Jasingh Kanahiya marched upon Batala with the forces of Sardar Bhag Singh Aluwalia, Sansar Chand, and the Rajas of Chamba and Noorpur. Jasasingh Ramgadiya had fortified Batala with walls that were 10 meters high and 7 meters thick, with strong support from the residents of Batala, who did not want to be under Kanhiya rule again, Jasasingh Ramgadiya mounted a stout defense. The youngest brother of Sansar Chand, Maan Chand, collected a force and tried to come to the help of the Ramgadiyas, but was defeated by Pag Singh Aluwalia. The siege lasted for 21 days before the frustrated invaders retreated. Jasing Kanahiya was livid, for his dream of taking his headquarters back from the Ramgariyas 
remained unfulfilled. Sadakor counseled patience. It is only a matter of time, Papaji, she said. Batala will be ours again. Farzana, or Begum Samru as she was better known, was in her mid-thirties. Walter Reinhardt Sombre, her late husband, had left her in charge of a large estate, which was well defended by the sepoys of the storied Sardana Brigade that Sombre had trained and placed under the command of European officers. After her husband's death, she had turned to his second-in-command, the German-born Colonel Pauli, who, in addition to commanding her brigade, had also become her lover. Unfortunately, Pauli had been put to death by the rebellious nephew of the emperor's late minister, Mirza Najaf Khan. In early 1887, a tall and handsome Irishman arrived at Sardana seeking employment and was appointed a junior commander. It was George Thomas, the soldier of fortune who had started a career in the South a few years earlier. The Begum was completely charmed by Thomas, and in a few months he was appointed commander of one of the Sardana Brigade's four battalions. The European commanders of the other battalions were intensely jealous of Thomas, as they were convinced that he was trying to seduce the Begum in order to become the master of her wealth and her estates. He did indeed become her lover, but the wily Begum had him marry one of her handmaids, Maria, and sign a document pledging allegiance to her. Begum Samru, who had converted to Christianity a few years earlier and enjoyed the Emperor Shah Alam's favor, was acutely aware that she was quite the catch, and she was determined to keep her independence as her position at the Mughal court seemed likely to improve even further. In early 1887, Madhaji Sindhya dispatched his general Ambaji Ingle to Karnal in order to control the Sikh raids on the emperor's crown lands that he was obliged to protect. Ambaji arrived at Thanesar, an important place of pilgrimage for Hindus, and after paying his respects, marched onwards towards Gurram, 15 miles from Patiala, where he set up camp. His intention was to levy tribute on Patiala, but the wily Divan Nanumal ensured that the negotiations progressed very slowly. Madhaji had turned to his erstwhile protege, Gulam Qadir Khan Rohilla, to form an alliance against the Sikhs. Gulam Qadir had succeeded his father Zabita Khan after his death, but he had omitted to pay the customary fee of succession to the emperor, which Madhaji was willing to overlook. On Madhaji's instructions, Gulam Qadir had joined Ambaji, but having a relationship with Sardar Baghel Singh and other Sikh chiefs, was lukewarm to the idea of exacting tribute from the Sikhs. Divan Nanumal, worried about an alliance between Gulam Qadir and the Marathas, 
reached out to him in secret and offered to pay him 20,000 rupees as a bribe to desert the Marathas. Events in Rajputana, however, distracted Madhaji and he recalled Ambaji to his side, leaving Gulam Kadar, who had gleefully pocketed Divan Nanumal's bribe to his own devices. Madhaji had been told by his agents that Pratap Singh had raised a force 20,000 strong, which had been joined by 10,000 horse provided by Bijay Singh of Jodhpur. When Madhaji sent envoys asking Pratap Singh to explain his belligerent movements, he stalled for several months, pretending to negotiate while he secretly approached some of Madhaji's subordinate commanders. The first to defect was Muhammad Beg Hamadani, the Mughal commander who had rebelled against Madhaji earlier but had returned to his ranks. After a face-off that lasted for a month, the Battle of Lal Soth was fought, in which Muhammad Beg Hamadani was killed. Madhaji Sindhya beat a strategic retreat and the Rajputs claimed victory. While Madhaji put on a brave front and declared that he had won as he had been able to leave Lal Soth without losing any of his baggage or artillery, there was no denying that both he and his overlord Shah Alam suffered great loss of prestige. Ismail Beg Hamadani, a nephew of the dead Mughal generals, took command of his forces and captured the city of Agra, though the Maratha garrison at the Agra fort continued to resist him. The fort of Ajmer, which had been in Maratha hands, was taken by Bijay Singh of Jodhpur. Gulam Qadar, who had been following the news of the reverses suffered by the Marathas with great interest, decided to act to restore the fortunes of his house. After all, his grandfather Najib Khan had been the Mir Bakshi, or the paymaster of the Mughal army, and had virtually ruled as regent in Delhi for a decade, while Shah Alam was in exile in Bengal and Avad. His father Zabita Khan had been Mir Bakshi as well, and Ghulam Qadir felt that his time had finally come. He left his citadel at Gosgar and marched his forces to Bagpat, which was less than 25 miles from Shah Alam's capital, and sent a messenger to the emperor demanding an interview. With him was a contingent of Sikh warriors under the command of Gurdit Singh, one of the chiefs of the Karodasingya missile. Madhaji Sindhya was represented in Delhi by his son-in-law, Laloji Shitole Deshmukh and Shah Nizamuddin, a former mendicant, both of whom advised the emperor to resist Ghulam Qadir. Opposed to them was Manzur Ali Khan, the powerful Nazir or superintendent of the royal harem, who had some history with Ghulam Qadir. The Nazim, who chafed at Madhaji's control over Shah Alam, saw Ghulam Qadir's belligerence as an opportunity to end Hindu rule in Delhi. Manzur Ali Khan had known Ghulam Qadir as a child, and had saved his life by covering him with his mantle when the Marathas and the emperor had sacked Gosgar several years earlier. The fort of Delhi was strong, well-stocked, and well-garrisoned, and could have held out against Ghulam Qadir for months. But when Ghulam Qadir and his Sikh allies appeared at Shahadra, Shah Nizamuddin, Ignoring the counsel of the Mughal military commanders, sent a force across the Yamuna to take them on. 
The small attacking force, consisting mostly of raw recruits, was routed, and even the seasoned detachment of Maratha horse, that had also been sent to the east bank of the Yamuna, surrendered to Ghulam Qadir. Several other Sikh chiefs, leading a contingent of cavalry, had also joined Ghulam Qadir by then. The desperate emperor started furiously casting about for allies, and one of the first he turned to was his favorite, Begum Samru, who he summoned to the capital. When he was advised of the Sikh presence in Ghulam Qadir's ranks, Shah Alam started sending letters to Sikh chiefs, asking for their support, and also sent Rodmal, Sardar Baghel Singh's agent at royal court, back to his master with a message. Shah Alam had a lot of respect for Baghel Singh, who had spent several months in Delhi a decade earlier, managing the security of the capital as he built gurdwaras in the city. The emperor told the agent to inform Baghel Singh that he had been appointed the court's agent in charge of all of Ghulam Qadir's estates and commanded him to take control of them immediately. Rodmal obtained a royal decree confirming the grant of Ghulam Qadir's territories to Baghel Singh and sent word to his master. Shah Nizamuddin and Ladoji Deshmukh abandoned the city at night and were set upon by a mob that relieved them of the bulk of their possessions. On August 26, Ghulam Qadir was presented to the emperor by Manzur Ali Khan. With the full support of the Nazim, Ghulam Qadir demanded the post of Mir Bakshi and the oversight of the imperial administration. In return, he offered to recapture Agra and the surrounding territories controlled by the Jats, districts that had traditionally been awarded as a revenue source to the Mir Bakshi. The helpless emperor was forced to agree, and on September 5th, Ghulam Qadir rode into Delhi with 2,000 men and established control over the capital. He was invested with the titles, robes, and seal of office of Mir Bakshi. He was also issued documents that confirmed his right to the crown lands that he had demanded. Both Sardar Baghel Singh and Begum Samru arrived in Delhi, giving the emperor some hope of escaping the clutches of Ghulam Qadir. The wily Rohila chief, however, managed to convince Baghel Singh to form an alliance with him instead, pointing out that the award of his territories to the Sikh chief had been an empty gesture and was now completely irrelevant because of his elevation to Mir Bakshi. Begum Samru had arrived in Delhi to defend the royal fort with 85 guns and four battalions of well-trained sepoys. Three of them were led by French officers and the fourth was commanded by her new recruit, the Irishman George Thomas. When Ghulam Qadir tried to win her over to his side as well, she haughtily refused, declaring that she had no intention of taking orders from the new Mir Bakshi, much to his chagrin. The rest of the month was spent in wrangling and jockeying for position as Ghulam Qadir and Begum Samru eyed each other warily. Sardar Bhanga Singh of Thanesar joined the ranks of the emperor's supporters with his men, and helped bolster Begum Samru's defense of the capital. Ghulam Qadir crossed back to the east side of the Yamuna to avoid an open confrontation with the Begum 
and a standoff began. Angered by Shah Alam's mild attempts to assert his independence by asking Begum Samru and Bhanga Singh to defend Delhi, Ghulam Qadr lost his patience and in early October started shelling the fort of Delhi from the east bank of the Yamuna. The petrified emperor had appealed to the Rajputs for help and had also drafted a letter to Mataji Sindhya asking him to return to relieve Delhi. But Manzoor Ali Khan frightened him, saying that the return of the Marathas to Delhi would only serve to make Ghulam Qadr even angrier. Ambaji Ingle had been sent to Delhi after Mataji got word that Ghulam Qadr had usurped his office and his titles, but he was confused when he was told to leave without any orders from the terrified emperor. Manzoor Ali Khan, who had completely become Ghulam Qadr's instrument, persuaded the emperor to pardon him for the shelling of Delhi. Several weeks later, the emperor's hopes were completely dashed when Mataji Sindhya suffered a military defeat at the hands of Ismail Beg Hamadani and was driven beyond the Chambal River. Delhi was now at the mercy of Ghulam Qadr. Several listeners of the Story of the Six podcast have expressed great interest in learning about the sources that went into the writing of the podcast. This episode of The Rise and Fall of the Sikh Empire is based on the following works. Avtar Singh Azad, Mahabali. Bhagat Singh, History of the Sikh Missiles. Jadunath Sarkar, Fall of the Mughal Empire, Volume 3. Surjit Singh Gandhi, 6 in the 18th century. Faz Muhammad Khatib's Hazaras, Siraj al Tariq, The History of Afghanistan, Volume 1. Govind Saharam Sardesai, New History of the Marathas, Volume 2. Gani Gyan Singh, Raj Khalsa, Volume 1. Sayyid Muhammad Latif, History of the Punjab. Hariram Gupta, History of the Sikhs. The Sikh Commonwealth, Prem Singh Hoti Mardan, Khalsa Raj De Usariye, and Brijendranath Banerjee, Begum Samru.
rise and fall of the Sikh empire is brought to you by Almast Media, the creators of the Story of the Sikhs podcast and the Gramat Sangeet podcast. The podcast features original music by Indian classical guitar maestro Ritam Sarkar. Tabla accompaniment is provided by Swarnava Ghosh. The podcast is made possible by the Chardi Kala Foundation, Ishpreet Singh and Manpreet Kaur, and the Sani Family Foundation. It is written and narrated by Sarpreet Singh, author of The Camel Merchant of Philadelphia, The Knight of the Restless Spirits, The Story of the Sikhs, and Koltar's Mind. To introduce myself briefly, I'm a Boston-based actor who was introduced to the Sikh world a few years ago when I toured extensively with Koltar's Mind, an immersive theatrical production that tells the story of the anti-Sikh violence of 1984. I am delighted to be involved in the retelling of this fabulous tale. I'm host Ben Gutman. Thank you for joining us.